Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaVariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to our program, Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Uh, it's a lovely fall evening here in New York City, and I would like to give you a couple of introductory comments about our, our show today. Uh, we have, in the past, as many of you who listen to the program uh, have noticed, we have done periodic surveys of topics in archaeology that have broad appeal to our listenership. We certainly want to cater to the interests of our audience, as most shows do. And one of the most, I suppose it's not really surprising because the nature of the matter is is so interesting anyway, but one of the unanticipated topics that has consistently drawn very high listenership numbers is the entire question of underwater archaeology and exploration of wreckages, shipwrecks uh, all over the world. We've done about three or four of those programs, and they continue to draw huge numbers of listeners. Uh, and we are including another special topic uh, on underwater archaeology in this program. We're going to talk about the world of privateering or piracy on the high seas and how that relates to archaeology and how archaeologists who specialize in this particular area uh, go about doing their work. Uh, my special guest is Dr. Frederick Hanselman, who is uh, the uh, chief under is, is a research faculty and dive training officer with the Meadows Center for Water and the Environment at Texas State University. He has worked on a very broad range of underwater archaeological projects, including the search for uh, prehistoric, prehistoric sites, um, 
in underwater caves. We've talked about that in separate contexts, but in this particular show, I think we're going to focus on the extensive work that Dr. Hanselman has uh, worked in uh, in the Caribbean, Gulf of Mexico, and around the coasts of South America, dealing specifically with privateering and pirate ships. He has uh, done very exotic types of ex uh, excavations and underwater recovery projects that deal with some of the mythical figures that, that we've always associated with privateering and piracy, uh, specifically Captain Kidd, and I would like to tell you a little bit about him. Uh, he has done work all over the Caribbean and, as I said, in the Gulf of Mexico, and I want to introduce you to Dr. Frederick Hanselman. Thank you so much for appearing on our program. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So I think one of the questions that is sort of on the edge of everybody's lips would be, um, how did you get into this type of archaeology? Uh, first of all, underwater archaeology, underwater archaeology generally, and more specifically into this very, very uh, unique topic of privateering and piracy. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, I, I think... I'm like a lot of other people in that I kind of grew up fascinated with all things aquatic. Uh, you know, I learned how to swim when I was three years old, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, my grandfather taught me how to snorkel and freedive in the Gulf of Mexico. He'd throw golf balls in a dress sock down uh, on the seafloor, not too deep. You know, my mom would get upset if... Uh, if if she felt that it was too deep, but uh, you know, we would practice uh, snorkeling and free, dive, free diving, and um, and I just had this uh, a love of all things aquatic. I anywhere we'd go on vacation, there there needed to be a pool in the hotel, uh -huh. things like that, you know. And and, uh, and on the flip side, I was fascinated with history, so I d devoured books in the library on, uh, for better or for worse, on individuals such as Christopher Columbus, Hernan Cortes. Um, the age of discovery, age of exploration, Vikings, um, native, the native indigenous groups here in the Western Hemisphere, the Maya, the Inca. And so I, I kind of had this um, two somewhat separate lines of interest that when I was in high school, I kind of realized that my, my love of history and archaeology could be combined with working underwater and on the water by focusing on maritime and underwater archaeological sites. And so it kind of culminated in my first course in, in archaeology, intro to archaeology, at uh, Brigham Young University. And I wrote my term paper on Bronze Age shipwrecks in the Mediterranean, and that was kind of it. I, I learned how to speak Spanish. I lived in Nicaragua for a couple of years, and I decided that I wanted to take my career path in the direction of working uh, in Latin America and on um, shipwrecks and, and maritime sites in and around Latin America. So are you from the Gulf Coast? Are you from that area? Actually, no. I was uh, born in Michigan and grew up in Indiana, but my grandparents lived on the Gulf Coast of Florida. And so we would go visit them frequently. And so that was kind of, uh, that was kind of where I cut my teeth, so to speak, uh, aquatically. And I would always, you know, look forward to those trips. And and as a youth, I remember thinking, you know, I think I was born in the wrong place, or <laughs> kind of not supposed to be landlocked. Did you do any uh, so, uh, aquatic exploration in the Great Lakes? You know, I never had a chance to. Uh, I was so busy with other projects in um, in the Caribbean, 
and uh, and once my career started to take off and I got super busy, I didn't have I didn't have much time to fit it in. And it's actually that's on my bucket list because some of the <laughs> shipwrecks there are such they're so well preserved. The the rate of preservation is phenomenal. Yeah. I was thinking of the Edward Fitzgerald up in uh, Lake Superior, which uh, certainly is one of the major wrecks that that people talk about a lot. But that's more recent, I guess. Um, your work, you uh, so after graduate school, give us uh, sort of a guideline as to how you got into it, because I'm sure you know everybody really wants to know how you really make the transition from having specialized in this to actually applying your skills and and your tool, toolkit, if you will, to actually practicing, because it's it's not a field that a lot of people can break into or break into. That's true. It is it is a very specialized field, and it's not like there are, there's a wide variety of of opportunities. I mean, we have to be honest about that, right? Sure. Um, You know, one of the things that I was able to do was um, I went to a program that was, it did not have a dedicated nautical or maritime program like Texas A&M has or University of West Florida, and I specialized in maritime archaeology under a broader umbrella of archaeology in general, which really helped me kind of develop um, and connect maritime archaeology to archaeological theory and to research design and, and, and things of that nature. Um, but I guess really how I kind of broke into it was I finished my first master's degree and I was offered a job with the Office of Underwater Science at Indiana University. And I began teaching scientific diving and underwater archaeology techniques. And at the same time, uh, I also continued working on my PhD, and so I was able to work professionally and and uh, and continue my education at the same time, which was uh, a major major coup uh, or blessing, if you will. Yeah. That, that you know, it was one of those things where I, I gained experience while I was learning, and the the clock started running on, you know, how much experience you gain in the field before I had completely finished all of my studies. And so, uh, I mean, you went to, obviously, an institution which is kind of landlocked. Um, and I think, if I'm not mistaken, there are only four or five schools where you can actually get formal training in underwater archaeology in the country. And so how did you bridge that gap? How did you actually uh, work your way into that? And how did you get on to your first uh, project that required uh, underwater archaeology and salvage? Well, uh, yeah, that's, a, that's a good question. I, I studied at Indiana University, and they do have an underwater archaeologist on staff, Charlie Beaker. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, and one of the things that was, that's, that's nice about that the program is that it allows you to kind of build a focus uh, and tailor it to your interests within what the program has. Uh, and I guess one of the, the most advantageous uh, skills or things that, that set my experience apart was the fact that I was fluent in Spanish. So in looking at going down and running a field crew or running boats or working with local fishermen or working with the local boat captains, I could slip into that role very easily because I spoke the language. And so that kind of helped me get a serious jump start on increasing the amount of time I spend in the field, which actually is what led to 
um, led to the job. Uh, and, and the reason I chose Indiana University was because it wasn't, it's not a very, um, how can I say it? It's not a large program, so you don't get at least the underwater portion. So you don't get lost in the wash, and you get a lot of face time with the professors that you do work with. And also, at the time of my application to the program, they were the only school that had ongoing research in Latin America in the Dominican Republic. Oh, so there was a logical connection over there, obviously. Yes. What about your actual training in underwater work? I mean, does it start with getting a scuba certificate? How does that work? Just the, the practical part of, of actually going underneath to the great depths of the, of the ocean and down to the floors wherever possible. How do you get that? It's, is it like a traditional scuba training? The, the practical training is acquired first through, through scuba I mean, if you, if you want to work underwater, you need to learn scuba. But at the same time, if you want to do archaeology, you need to, do arche- you need to learn how to do archaeology. So it's sort of a combination. Right. Um, since, since I'm already, or I was already, enthused with the water and water sports, I was already a certified diver um, before I even got into my undergraduate degree of, of anthropology and archaeology. So I kind of had that under my belt. So again, you know, that was kind of another jump start and, and getting me going. Uh, and, you know, there's, a, there's sort of this discussion in the field of, well, is it better to take a good diver and make them an archaeologist, or is it better to take right. an archaeologist and right. make them a diver? And, you know, it's, and that really is, it's, I've seen both sides of the spectrum, and I think that the, the key to that is just to try and find a happy medium, because there are phenomenal divers that, while they might not be able to do post-processing of the data from the field work uh, or analysis of artifacts, they can go out because they've been taught in the methods and they can map and they can measure and they can do a lot of really good stuff without having the degree. Um, That being said, I've also seen excellent divers that can't wrap their heads around what it is that it means to be an archaeologist and why all the mapping and measuring and data acquisition is necessary. And the flip side, it's, it's the same inverse relationship on the side of the archaeologist. So you could take a phenomenal archaeologist and they could be absolutely terrible in the water, uh, but you can also take a great archaeologist and teach them how to be an awesome diver. So, I mean, it's, it's one of those things where I, I, I literally, like, sit the fence. I mean, I play Switzerland on that because I've seen it all. <laughs> but so you were able to find that happy medium, like you say, and just sort of merge these two skill sets and, and just go into it. So that would take you to the Dominican, where obviously there is uh, a tremendous amount of, rec- well, a tremendous number of wreckages, you know, because that was, uh, I guess we would sort of locally, most people would think of Pirates of the Caribbean, where there was so much activity in that part of the world because of the trade. And you cut your teeth on those Caribbean uh, subaqueous explorations? Absolutely. Uh, And, you know, I think that's one of the things that I enjoyed about Indiana as well. Uh, Since we weren't a large program, there, you, you know, you could piggyback onto other projects to help other people doing research in other areas so you learned other things instead of um, specializing and focusing in on on one thing very heavily. So uh, in the Dominican Republic, I worked on projects from submerged caverns where there are Taino and and prehistoric 
uh, kind of ancient American artifacts and sites, all the way up to more modern shipwrecks and the development of marine protected areas and, and underwater parks. So there's a huge, there's a vast array of things that I was exposed to that really helped shape me professionally and allow me to be able to assist or direct or work with both historical and prehistoric archaeological sites uh, underwater. And we will be back with our very fascinating discussion with uh, Dr. uh, Frederick Hanselman on underwater archaeology and its specific applications to privateering and piracy uh, after these words. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Want to help make our world a better place, but not sure where to start? Tune into Better Worldians Radio with the creators of the social game on Facebook called A Better World. Join hosts Ray, Mary Sue, and Gregory Hansel, who will inspire you to make a big difference in small ways. They'll speak to experts, authors, volunteers, and everyday people who are changing the world daily. Better Worldians Radio is heard live every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. Tune into Around the World in a Glass, presented by Sportsman's. We're a show all about wine, spirits, and other beverages. Your host, Kimber Stonehouse, is a professional expert and wine enthusiast. Each week, we'll focus on a different region of the world, discuss wines and other beverages, talk about some of the top restaurants in the region, and what to pair with which wine. Just listening could make you almost an expert. Around the World in a Glass is heard live every Wednesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Each week, Jimmy Gould brings you the stories and the people that you want to hear about. Tune in to A Current Life to hear about the journey to success, how our guests became the people they are today, and the highs and lows they experienced along the way. Each hour will leave you inspired and entertained as Jimmy gets up close and personal with every week's guest and shares ideas you can identify with and apply to your own life. A Current Life with Jimmy Gould airs Fridays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra geoarc.com. Now, back to the program. Hi, I'm Joe Schildenrein, and I'm back with a very unique 
edition of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. We're continuing on sort of a semi-continuous series that we have found has become very, very popular in our discussions and has certainly raised a lot of interest among the public as well as in the world of specialized underwater archaeologists. And that is the world of uh, underwater exploration in the Caribbean with a focus on privateering and the pirates and uh, for those of you who have seen some of those movies like Pirates of the Caribbean and uh, similar types of, of, uh, of programs on the History Channel, etc., um, a little bit of a background is that this kind of archaeology was certainly stimulated by uh, the ascension of the Spanish and the English on the high seas in the 16th century. The Spanish Armada, I think most of you who remember studying these things in social studies class and later, uh, know that the British and the Spanish sort of fought for ascendancy, if you will, on the high seas and their, uh, their routes and they followed the commercial ventures and the expansionist uh, exploits of the British and the Spanish in the New World, and uh, I guess a major center for that type of uh, conflict was in uh, the Caribbean and certainly along the uh, coasts of Central America. And uh, one of your more fascinating projects, I think, Dr. Hanselman, is uh, the ships, Lost Ships of Henry Morgan, which is along the coast of Panama. Why don't you give us a little insight on how you got involved in that project and the actual types of work that you did and how you did it? Absolutely. You know, uh, I, I became involved in the, uh, the project in Panama uh, with two colleagues of mine, Jim Delgado and Dominique Rosolo. Uh, and we initiated what we called the, the Chagres River Maritime Landscape Study. And it, it, studying the, or investigating the 500 years of maritime activity, or historical maritime activity, that occurred in and around the mouth of the Chagres River. Uh, and the Chagres River in Panama is, I, I like to think of it as Mother Nature's Panama Canal. This is the river that, that Balboa, uh, Balboa sailed up when he first almost crossed the isthmus and became the first uh, European to see the Pacific from uh, an Atlantic crossing. It was also used by the Spanish as one of the two main routes to get from Atlantic to Pacific, etc., especially when they were uh, carting all the gold and silver from the, the South American mines in what's now modern-day Peru. Uh, yeah. And so it's just this, this river is sort of the lifeblood of maritime activity, and it continues to be today because this is the same river that feeds the locks and the modern-day Panama Canal. So we were fascinated with that, and we, we decided we wanted to look at this 500 years. And I was brought on uh, to be sort of the colonial Spanish and, and piracy specialist due to some work on uh, the Captain Kidd shipwreck in the Dominican Republic, which I'm, we'll talk about here in a minute. But, uh, you know, we went down there and we did the first ever underwater archaeological reconnaissance of the mouth of this, this river, and we found some guns that were extremely, uh, they were extremely exciting because they appeared to be of a similar typology uh, as to what would have been on a privateer ship. And I guess I should probably give you a little bit of a background and why we're looking there and what, what Morgan has to do with Panama. 
and and a little bit on how this project came to fruition because it does seem like a very logical place to start. I mean, just where the Atlantic and the Pacific join, I mean, that seems like the perfect place. So how did how did this project emerge? Well, yeah, I guess the project first emerged I would say back in 1671 when uh <laughs> when when Henry Morgan first amassed uh what I believe to be the largest pirate or privateer crew in the history of the Caribbean. Um, he had 36 vessels, 250 guns or cannons, and just shy of about 1,800 men. And Morgan, throughout his career, kind of grew his own legend, and that's what allowed him to be able to amass such a such a crew or or a fleet, if you will, uh, and he set his sights on Panama City, which was one of the one of the richest cities in the Spanish Main, due to the fact that all that gold and silver had to stop in Panama City before they transported it over to the Atlantic Spain. side of the isthmus. Right. So, and and Morgan was one of the first British uh, one of the first British colonists to come over in 1655 when he was 19 with the the party sent by Cromwell to actually start establishing a British foothold in the Spanish colonies, and they failed miserably trying to sack Santo Domingo and Hispaniola, and they settled on Jamaica as their as kind of their consolation prize. So Morgan cut his teeth as a privateer, came up through the ranks, built his legend based on a number of very fascinating victories over uh, through from Mexico all the way down to Venezuela. Um, just sacking towns and cities and, and capturing ships and evading capture himself. And so it culminated in this final campaign of his against Panama. Mm-hmm. So Morgan, uh, inbound to Panama, sends an advance party of four ships, and they sack the castle of San Lorenzo that's perched on the cliff overlooking the mouth of the river and it's, it was the Spanish's defensive position to guarding their, their ships that would come in and out of the river mouth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he did that because he didn't want Spanish spies or Spanish, uh, any of the soldiers that would have retreated to report on the actual number of their ships. So then when he was inbound, um, you know, I, I, I like to think of this uh, in relationship to a vehicle or an automobile. Um, unlike a car, you can't slam the brakes on a ship. And they did not, or they were, un- they did not know about, or they were unaware of, a small patch reef that almost lies directly in the mouth of the river, at least in the most logical route to sail into the river. And he ran his flagship, the Satisfaction, aground. And because you can't throw the brakes on, four more ships followed suit. So he lost five ships, but undaunted, he continued. They salvaged what they could from the ships, left them there sailed up the Chagres River, crossed the Isthmus, sacked Panama City. They were there for a month, held it for ransom, acquired a number of, uh, of gold and silver and, and treasure and, and um, smaller ransoms, and then they sailed back to Jamaica. And so, um, you know, what's, what's interesting is we knew that it happened, but sometimes you have to wonder what are the odds that you're actually going to find something uh, in an area that big when you're looking at a time span of several hundred years. And your historic documentation gave you pretty much of a broad uh, idea of where that was? 
Yes, and and he mentioned the reef that he ran aground on in his uh-huh. report. Yep, right. in his in the report that he filed to the governor of Jamaica, he he mentioned the reef, and we knew exactly where the reef was. And there's nothing else that's that shallow, nor any other logical route. So you kind of theorize where he would have gone, and and then we decided to build part of our survey area around that reef, and that's so where we lo- found those those guns. So you're looking at the bathymetric maps, which clearly he didn't have, and you're you're getting a pretty localized uh, fix on this. Exactly. And so that's what allowed us to kind of pinpoint the, the area where we thought he might have lost his ships. And we also had a number of other areas for other known shipwrecks from the gold rush period um, and also colonial Spanish and, and et cetera throughout that, the time of the, the use of this river historically. Uh, and so when we saw these guns, we got excited because not a single one of them was the same. They all seemed to be smaller. Now, where but, did you see the where did you see the guns? I mean, where did they show up? The guns were right uh, along the reef. There are a series of them, kind of just strewn along the reef, as if they'd been pitched off of the upper deck of a ship as it ran aground. One of the accounts of the wrecking event stated that they hit so hard that masts were knocked down. And all hands on the upper deck were thrown into the water. And they were exposed along the reef, and, and uh, nobody had really seen them before you got there? Or were they marked? or How did that work? Well, I mean, they, it seemed they, like they were exposed. They were exposed. But the thing is, uh, a gun is something that it's hard to, for like a recreational diver or somebody who, let's just say a looter, somebody that goes and they, they pick up artifacts off of archaeological sites. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, yeah. You know, it, you can't really put a cannon into your, the pocket of your swim trunks. That's true. And so you've got to have, you know, you have to have either a winch or a crane or some system to recover, uh, to recover these, the, these larger artifacts. Uh, and, and I know that we're not the first ones to be there. Right. I know that people have been diving there since the, the U.S., had their fort there and scuba was introduced. So there's all sorts of stuff that's been, that's been looted and picked up from these areas. Mm-hmm. Um, but the heavier artifacts for the most part uh, are going to be, are, are going to stay. And we also know that this area with, with the deposition of sediment coming from the river, especially when it's, when it's raining, uh, if the canal gets high, then they'll open up the dam and they'll flood the so that the locks, the level of water in the locks doesn't get um, unmanageable. And so you'll have different rates of deposition and, and sediment deposited everywhere. Um, and then you also have the, you have kind of this washing machine of where the ocean meets the river. So there, we've also seen over the last several years working there is that you'll go to the site one week and you'll see certain elements and then you come back and you'll find that they're gone because they've been buried because that's how fast the the sediment accumulates. Sediment so, accumulates. So so take us through the recovery process. How did that work? Well, basically, uh we used lift bags to make the cannons neutral. So we're dealing with these are smaller guns. So we're dealing with 300 to probably about 800 pound guns, maybe, maybe almost a ton. Um, and so what we would do is we would strap the lift bag to the cannon 
and then we would inflate the bag and try to get it neutral so that it's not rising to the surface nor sinking to the bottom. Right. Then we would, we would try to get it off of the reef zone, uh, and and then we would raise it to the surface in better water conditions, and we tow it to shore with our research boat, and then we put it on a boom crane, and we drove them all back to Panama City to the conservation laboratory at Patronato Panama Viejo. When was this? This was back in 2010. Okay, so it's not that long ago, really. No, no. Not at and all. And what else did you salvage from the wreckage? I mean, we're talking about the cannons and the guns. What else did you get? Well, we're still looking for the ships themselves. Uh-huh. Um, after that initial survey in 2008, we decided the guns, like you said, they are exposed. If we come out and say we believe them to be Morgans, there'll be interest in those. And so we figured the first step in going back should be to recover those guns, conserve them, see if we can get any diagnostic markings or anything on them, which after removing the, the calcium carbon, the coral and concretions that surround right. the, we've, we have markings that look to be uh, a mixture of guns. Uh, we have some that are mid to late 17th century uh, English which is exactly what we're looking for. Right. And we also have some French guns, which is interesting because Morgan, actually, his flagship, he captured from other French privateers, and there's a good number of his fleet that were French vessels as well. So you're getting all this information that's really confirming your suspicions. And I guess uh, what you're saying, with it, which makes a fair amount of sense, you're, you're going to deal with the guns, make sure that that's, that's your first step, and you don't really want to broadcast this all over the place so that everybody and their mother sort of shows up and starts salvaging things left and right, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And so then I guess the next step after that, once we'd secured the guns, in 2011 we came back and we, we conducted a magnetometer survey, and we test-excavated test one anomaly. So basically... A magnetometer is kind of a large-scale metal detector that picks up differences from the, or magnetic differences from the, the geographic region's magnetic signature. So you tow it behind the boat, and you, you put track lines in, and you just boat back and forth, and it picks up all the different, what we call anomalies, that turn right. into dive targets and potential archaeological sites. And I think with the magnetometer survey we did in 2011, and we did some more in some other areas in 2012, we have around 150 anomalies just in the in the project area, and we've only really, honestly, tested probably about 12 of them. Right. We should and tell. One, the, yeah, sorry. go ahead. No, I was just going to say, tell the listenership that. Uh, this is really not that different from terrestrial archaeology as well. You're basically using the magnetometry to run a series of transects, and you pick up these disturbances in the signal, and then you have indications that something is not natural in the in the subsurface, and that that gives you sort of a basic outline of of uh, your ship and the disturbances and the wreckage and the movement that has occurred subsequent to the original wreckage and and has been retransported by wave action and that sort of thing. So people uh, should understand that this is pretty uh, sophisticated technology that we have and getting more sophisticated all the time, and it's used both in uh, terrestrial and marine situations. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, that's what, that's what leads us to 
pinpoint where we'd like to dive or excavate, which is sure. the same as what's done on land. Um, and, you know, one of those, we tested one site, and it turned out that it was a shipwreck. And upon further study of that wreck in 2012, we, we decided it's most likely a 17th century colonial Spanish ship. It's, there's a very phenomenally preserved uh, section of wooden hull, uh, most of the, the outer lower portions of the hull, as well as the cargo. There's uh, over 100 wooden boxes in the cargo hold, and this was all buried roughly three feet under the kind of the sand-clay matrix, which is the mixture of the sand from the ocean and the, and the clay deposition from the river. So that, that actually helped preserve the wreck and, and, its, uh, and its, its cargo. So have you been able to remove the cargo, any of the boxes? Has that already been done, or is that still sort of waiting, or what, what, what's going on with that? That's a good question. We did sample uh, that, that one site in particular. We recovered a wooden barrel and one of the boxes, uh, one sword blade and a sword blade fragment, a number of lead uh, cargo seals. And so we, have, we, we recovered a sample of what we hope to be diagnostic and, I mean, to be honest, who doesn't want to open up a wooden chest that you find at the bottom of, of the ocean? Course. Right? So, of course, of <laughs> course. You know, we have not opened that yet. We're, the uh, conservation laboratory is uh, dotting all its I's and crossing its T's and making sure that they know exactly how to treat it, what's the best method for opening it, because, you know, you don't get to do this all the time, and you want to make sure that if you're going to do it, you're going to do it right. And so we hope to open that sometime within the next few months. And we're going to have to take a break here again, and we will return very shortly with our very fascinating guest, Dr. Frederick Hanselman, and continue with our discovery of the real pirates of the Caribbean and the wreckages that occurred in their wake. Uh, we'll be back after these words. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Join us for Cruise Views, an exciting behind-the-scenes look into what makes your cruise vacation tick, as well as the guests, crew, and industry experts that are the sailing force behind some of the world's top cruise offerings. Cruise Views with Ken Muscat, brought to you by MSC Cruises, will help you make the most of your travel budget. Find out more about the state-of-the-art cruise ships sailing the high seas and get the inside scoop on the latest innovations and destinations. Ken will also feature surprises, including weekly giveaways and more. Join us Fridays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Come back to your senses. Imagine a radio show that will help you recover your common sense. Host Leah Brenda Smith is a health and wellness specialist who will explain techniques designed to help you recover from the stress of your life. It's all about how you respond to your thoughts. A little bit of self-awareness can go a long way in helping you to relax and enjoy your life. Tune in to Come Back to Your Senses Radio, live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Adoption changes a family forever, for the adopters as well as the adoptees. There are many adjustments that need to be made, from lifestyle to financial. 
and the personal rewards are unlimited. Listen every week for Your Adoption Coach with Kelly Ellison. We will examine in detail such topics as international and domestic adoption. We will talk with adoption professionals and hear stories about real families adopting. If you've been thinking about adoption or recently began the process, you'll want to tune in to be inspired every Saturday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra goarc.com. Now, back to the program. Hi, um, this is Joe Schuldner, and we're back with our very fascinating discussion of shipwrecks, pirates, and privateers. And uh, our special guest, uh, Dr. Frederick Hanselman, is in the midst of describing the excavation of the lost ships of, of Henry Morgan uh, off the coast of Panama. And we were, dis- we were discussing the fact that initially the guns themselves and the cannons, which had been exposed, obviously, for a long time, were actually uh, recovered by his team because they had the heavy equipment as to initially recover it. And secondly, they had the technology so- to sort of track the wreckage itself in the place where a lot of the pieces fragmented and fell apart and using very high technology types of methods that we've used both in, in – uh, uh, land, land-based and uh, marine-based situations, he and his team have been able to uh, uh, recover tremendous evidence of the wreckage itself. And you were talking about the recovery of the crates and the wooden wooden cargo. And what can you tell us about that once you bring that to the conservation lab? Well, you know, that's kind of the, the, the key to any sort of recovery. And, and I think this this holds true for any sort of archaeological endeavor is that you need to have a long-term plan in place as to what you're going to do with any artifacts you recover. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that also sets us apart from people that might uh, be in commercial salvage or treasure hunting or any of that is a lot of times there, there isn't much thought given to actually conserving the pieces as much as what we would do. Uh, and so, you know, that was one of those things where we wanted to make sure that we had the funding for conservation before we recovered anything and that there was a plan in place. So, uh, and, and largely, that's where our bread and butter is in looking at shipwrecks and thinking about trying to identify nationality, the origin, the function of different ships is getting the information from the archaeological record that we recover. And when it comes to salt-impregnated, coral-encrusted artifacts, there is a, um, there's a, you know, a, a time-consuming process. So the cannons look like and appear to be Morgans based off of some markings and, and a number of circumstantial uh, evidence. And 
the items we recovered from the other shipwreck appear to be colonial Spanish. So we have Morgan's guns, but we don't have his ship. And we have a very phenomenal and unique um, potential Spanish now, uh, which is a type of Spanish merchant vessel that it, it itself deserves further study. And so, and this is totally unanticipated? Well, I mean, we anticipated we would find something. But when you go to survey a large project area and you have kind of this mental idea of 500 years of activity in the area. Sure, yeah. You know, it's kind of like finding the proverbial needle in a haystack. Well, we found, of course. We found artifacts, the cannons that are from Morgan. And, and that, that Spanish wreck, sure, it's anticipated, but sometimes anticipation and reality are different. And no, us, no, but it, it was I, I a, guess it was a positive thing. <laughs> right. No, no. But my question is, and, and these are not contemporaneous vessels. Uh, they were, didn't engage. You, could you piece together that story or is this basically uh, because if we think about what you told us previously, you had the account of, of the kid uh, wreckage. And uh, there was, I assume, no mention made of another Spanish ship in the vicinity, so these hadn't engaged with one another. No, these two ships didn't engage with each other. Uh, and, and one of the things that we have to do when we look in this area is not just look at you know, all the English documentation, but we also have to look at what the Spanish have for their losses. And, and there's actually a, a ship that went down in 1681, about 10 years hmm. after Morgan lost his ships, and there's a number of other ones that went down in the 18th century as well, uh, and so uh, this this shipwreck that went that sank in 1681 is a very good candidate for for this the the ship that we're looking at that we believe to be a Spanish colonial merchant. Okay, and so, so yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> the, basically, I mean that's one of the things with historical archaeology is uh, sometimes the archaeological record disproves what's written or the historical record, but sometimes right. the historical record can help us identify the archaeological record because we do have documentation from those time periods. So who funds all of this? Well, it, it, it's funny that you should ask that. Uh, the last two, well, I should back up and, and give, give props where they're due. In 2008, our initial survey and the Canon recovery in 2010 was funded by our good friends at the Wade Institute. And uh, they've been very supportive of, of this project. And 2011 through current, the project has been funded by an iconic brand of adult beverage that uh, is actually Morgan's namesake. I'm sure everyone's familiar with Captain Morgan Rum. Uh, they approached us after we went public with the recovery of the, the cannons and the hypothesis that they could be Captain Morgan's, and they asked us how could they get involved, and they were very enthusiastic, and and they wanted to uh, support the project, and they've been a wonderful partner for the last uh, two plus years, and it's been a it's been a pretty good it's been a very very nice working relationship. So it's it's interesting, you know, you have this uh, the the historical real pirate privateer Henry Morgan, uh, and then you have sort of the, 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 the fictionalized, I guess, illustration of him yeah. uh, as known through the, the rum company. And what's, what's really interesting is a lot of people are learning about the real Henry Morgan and learning about archaeology and history through Captain Morgan Rum's efforts to support the research because they're putting the message out there, that, hey, this is a real guy, hey, real things happened, and people are kind of tuning in. 
And that's really how the message gets out. And I have to add, their commercials are really, really good. They I mean, are, they, aren't they? They're wonderful, and they look like the recreations that they're doing in terms of dress and and possibly even the architecture of the ships. Although I don't know much about that, you probably do. Uh, does it does it approximate what you're finding, and does it fit in well? And have they done a re- reasonably good recreation a recreation of that? They are. They're they're doing a a very good job recreating kind of the the aura of that that time period and what the ships might have been like, and and uh, you know perhaps. The exploits are embellished, such as you know the the fellow he rescues out of prison with a map tattooed on his back and whatnot. Yeah, I love that. that. Yeah, I know. I liked it too. But you know, you can't, you can't, you can't, you can't dislike it. I mean, it's it's funny and it's entertaining. And and the neat thing is, is they do that, but at the same time, they're they're telling the the true story while they're they're having fun with the their brand character. I mean, what what other brand has the the luck? Uh, to have such an illustrious historical real figure associated with their brand, you know, it's it's great. And and as we've seen in numerous occasions, and one of one of our messages that I think we're trying to get across in the program is this sort of interfacing between the commercial world and the research world, and the world of archaeological exploration is only benefiting both sides when when both sets of interests get together, and we have sources of funding, we have a popularization of archaeology that drives a lot of people to actually do the research and find out the background. And I think these types of partnerships are, are really moving towards uh, a cooperative spirit that that I think enriches every side. Um, and I'm sure, and I'm sure you're seeing that probably more than other people. So let's move you to the uh, to the world of the Gulf of Mexico and the types of archaeological underwater exploration that you say uh, you've you've indicated in several uh, situations is not really well known. Yeah, that, that's one of those things where I was introduced to the Gulf of Mexico through some colleagues. Uh, obviously, I grew up swimming and diving in the Gulf of Mexico, but it, it was, uh, you know, roughly, vaguely familiar with the history and the background. But there have been some phenomenal projects that a number of my colleagues have done in the Gulf of Mexico, and I was invited to take part and and be uh, one of the lead archaeologists on a great team made up of people from a number of agencies and, and universities, uh, Texas Historical Commission, NOAA, the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, Bureau of Safety and Environmental Enforcement, and we, we partnered with the Ocean of Exploration Trust and, and Bob Ballard's uh, research vessel or explore, exploration vessel, the Nautilus, right. um, to go out and sample some sites that had been found by Shell Oil almost a mile deep. And right. what's interesting is, you know, our working hypothesis on, on these ships uh, one of the very strong theories is that these could possibly be a privateer with its consorts or its prizes. I mean, basically, Shell found a number of sonar targets that appeared to be wrecks and reported them to the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management. And then the team was put together, and we decided that we needed to take a closer look at these. Noah took a look and did a very brief um, video photo reconnaissance dive with an ROV in 2012, and we went back right. this past summer to to sample these sites. So, give us a, just a little. We don't we don't have very much time left. We just have a few minutes. Give us a little bit of an overview of the Captain Kidd exploration. Okay, uh, Captain Kidd 
That was uh, that was another project that I was involved with uh, at Indiana University. Actually, the topic of my dissertation, and it's really it's really pretty phenomenal. The the wreck that we worked on there was abandoned by Captain Kidd in 1699 when he went to New England to try to clear his name of piracy. Mm-hmm. Basically, what happened was Kidd was on a voyage to hunt pirates capture what the pirates had and bring it back to England to divvy up the the, the loot, per se, with his uh, his backers from the, the Whig party. And he was backed by a number of influential politicians and merchants. So he captures a ship in the Indian Ocean with a crew that's been semi-mutinous uh, because they had not had much uh, to capture in about two years of sailing. And... It was flying a French flag. It had French colors, but the captain was uh, the captain was English, and the the crew there were a lot. There was the the crew was mostly uh, made up of Armenians, and uh, and and the, the the goods and cargo belonged to a consortium of Armenian merchants, and the majority of it belonged to a nobleman in the the court of of Khan. Kid was a little bit wary about capturing it, but he put it to a vote to his crew, and of course they voted to take it. And he figured that with the French passes or the French identifying papers, identification papers, and the French flag, he could justify the capture. But you know, at the same time, this is where British colonialism is expanding, and we're seeing Spain starting to retreat some in its colonies in the Western Hemisphere, and and Britain is expanding into India and and the east. And so you have the English the the English East India Company and you have these merchants going over there to establish trade networks and and um and you know we're at the cusp of globalization really. And what happened was uh because the cargo belonged to a nobleman in the Khan's court, he complained to the Khan and you can see, or you can imagine who whose name jumped up to number one on the bad guy list, right? You know, and that's basically what what happened. Uh, Kid had a privateer commission from England, and he captured this ship. His crew mutinied thereafter at Madagascar, Saint Mary's Island near Madagascar, and they left him with the skeleton crew and the ship that he had captured, uh, and they took what they could. For profit, but he still had some left. So with a skeleton crew, he crosses the Atlantic, makes tries to make birth at a number of the uh, the, the Greater Antilles, and that's where he realizes or he's made aware of the fact that he's been denounced as a pirate and he's wanted for piracy. And on that note, we'll leave it as a teaser for a follow-up program if if you're willing to do it, because we're out of time and we're just going to get into this Captain Kid situation uh if and when we can get you back here can we do that absolutely okay and thank you so much and uh we appreciate everybody's listening and we'll be back with another uh episode of indiana jones myth reality and 21st century archaeology next week and we are looking forward to seeing a follow-up program by dr handelsman uh in the next few weeks thank you so much and good evening again for tuning in to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. 
please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. 